What is faith? Have you ever heard somebody ask that question? Sometimes we assume we know what it is. Or maybe you've heard somebody say, well, I found my faith. I've heard that expression a time or two. What do they mean? Was their faith lost? What is faith? Well, today we're going to talk about faith, and we're going to talk about something, well, actually two things, that were lost and then found. And this is Faith is where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So if you're searching, maybe you've already found, we hope this will be of some benefit to you to strengthen your faith, to stretch you in God's direction, and to help us all develop that kind of confidence in God that is unshaking, unwavering, cannot be attacked, assailed, diminished, cannot be destroyed because we trust the one who is ultimately trustworthy. We have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're so glad you've joined us today. We do these programs in the hope that it'll help you, encourage you, strengthen you, lead you in the right direction, because we all want to understand that which is true and right, and we all want to make sure our lives are ready for that great day when we all stand before God. And so when we explore faith and when we understand what it is and when we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, we can live the way God has called us to live. We can love him with everything we've got, as the scriptures say, as Jesus said, love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we can love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we do that, in fact, Jesus said, do that to one inquiring man, he said, do that, love God with all you've got and your neighbor as yourself, and you will live. So let's explore things. We've got a lot of things to talk about today, and all of them around this idea of faith and of trusting in God. But before we get into it, I want to I want to mention a couple things. We want to go back to Jeremiah just a little bit, because I was thinking some more about that. And I have a couple of ideas that I want you to factor into your understanding of Jeremiah and his field trip to the potter's house. So we're going to go to Jeremiah to start off. And I, I don't mean to re, redo what we did last week. That's, that's not going to be the case. It's just a, an addition of a couple of things that I think you'll find very helpful, very insightful, particularly for our time in the United States of America and how we live out these days. You see, God has put us here for such a time as this. We're not here by accident, and we need to understand our times so that we can live well and represent God well. So we're going to go back to Jeremiah for a little bit, and then we're going to talk about a couple of things that were lost. Jesus told some parables, and he told three in a row, really. We're only going to talk about two of them. He told three in a row, one about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about a lost son. We usually call him the prodigal son. And we're going to talk about that concept of of what Jesus was really trying to communicate to us in those parables. And sometimes there's more going on there than what we think about because we kind of get focused on one element or another, and we want to take another look at that idea and see what Jesus might help us understand better for our times. And then I meant to get to this last week, but I got so talkative and so wrapped up in Jeremiah and the importance of that that I just didn't get to it. But I but I want to talk about 10 things I think again. I've got 10 new things that I've been thinking about, and I hope you'll find those helpful. So we're going to visit Jeremiah, hear what Jesus says when he talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then finish up with some ideas of things that I'm thinking about that might help you think about things better 
and hopefully stretch us in God's direction so we can have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So let's go back to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 18, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go, go on a field trip, go down to the potter's house, and I want you to watch what the potter's doing. And the potter, of course, was making a jar out of clay. And God took that opportunity to say to Jeremiah, in the same way that the potter can handle that jar in whatever way he or she wants to, so I can handle creation. And creation is subject to my supervision, you might say. We might use a $10 word and say sovereignty. And so Jesus or God was pointing out to Jeremiah that he was the one that people needed to answer to, and he issued a warning. And he said, if you don't do what I say, then the consequence will be disaster. And in fact, I think I used the, the comparison that we either accept God's salvation and, and walk with him, or we end up being shattered because in the next chapter, God sends Jeremiah back down to the potter's house to buy a finished product, a jar that he then shattered to demonstrate to the people that, that this is what was going to happen because they had not followed God. So I keep thinking about these things for a longer time, maybe than most people do. And I heard another person suggest this idea and I, I it's not original with me. I'm in fact, I'm not sure if it was original with the other person I heard suggested it, but they, they made a very, very, very important observation. And I want you to get this. And I want you to think about how that applies, not just to the Jeremiah story and the parable that, that God showed Jeremiah through the potter's house field trip, but how it applies today. So this gentleman, I was listening on a, on a podcast, and he was saying that, that when it comes right down to it, people, that means us, you and I, we are either ruled by truth or by power. And I thought about that for a little bit, and he explained it a little bit, and, and the light came on for me anyway. I hope it comes on for you. But he was talking about truth, meaning God's truth, that which we know is true. And that's what God was talking about in Jeremiah. He was saying, listen, I, I don't hide things from you. I don't try to trick you. I'm telling you that this is what is true, and this is how you need to live. And, and it's up to you, but I want you to live this way. And then he went on to say, but if you don't, there are consequences to not living by the truth, by my truth. Sometimes I refer to this concept of truth, and other people do as well as truth with a capital T. And a lot of people today want to say my truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a misuse, I think, of the word truth. I'm talking about that which we know is absolutely true. Truth, what God has told us, no secrets, nothing hidden, truth. So we live by truth or we live subject to power. Well, God says if you don't live by my truth, then my power will correct you, or using the jar illustration, shatter you, not a good consequence by any stretch of the imagination. So we live by truth, or we subject ourselves to God's judgment, shattering. That's pretty straightforward, pretty easy to understand. Not too many people would, would miss that understanding from the Bible. The Bible's clear. God says this is the way you should live. If you don't 
it's not going to turn out well for you in the end. But if you do, it's going to be great. So we live by, we are ruled by, we rule ourselves or bring ourselves under the authority of truth, or we subject ourselves to power. Now, how does that play out in our world? Well, here's where some people say, oh boy, there he goes again. Well, maybe, but I think it's really important. I don't think this is an overstatement at all, but I think it's something we who want to have faith and confidence in God need to take very seriously. We live in a time where some people on one end of the philosophical spectrum, they have decided that whatever they want to be true can be true. So we all know there's all this gender identity stuff going on. And in simple terms, what they have decided is that if a boy thinks he's a girl then and says he's a girl, then that becomes true. Now, we all know objectively, down to the cellular level, we cannot change from a boy to a girl or from a girl to a boy. So we know that the way God created us is what is true. We are either male or female. Very clear from Genesis, when God started the whole thing of creation, very true now, because we understand we have boys and we have girls, and and God intended it that way. When we try to change that, then we are changing what is true into what is false, and we're just making a mess when we try to do that. But nonetheless, there are people that have adopted that perspective, and so they they then insist that we agree with them. And when they're in certain positions of authority, they use their power to make sure we agree with them. Now, here's where it gets messy and where people sometimes don't want to think about this, but we should. Remember, we are responsible before God for our choices and our behavior in every area of life. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. Isn't it disconcerting, alarming, terrifying even, that we live in a time when people who do not believe in truth have positions of power, and they're using that power to force us to conform with their understanding of truth, which is really a lie? Now, you think about that. We have governors that are doing that. We have local officials that are doing that. We have school boards that are doing that. Successfully, we are pushing back against some of that. You will see that occasionally. We have members of the United States House, the United States Senate that believe that and are trying to enforce their perspective on us by the use of power. We have members of the administration that is trying to say to us, That administration is trying to say to us that you have to believe this and do this, or we will, to use Jeremiah's illustration, we will shatter you. We will crush you. So we who are followers of Jesus need to take this seriously because we are finding out that we live under truth or under power. And if the people that rule follow the truth, then no power is necessary. They just need to persuade us to follow the truth. But when they obviously advocate for positions that are not true, and then they use their power 
to enforce that, we're in big trouble fast. So I just think we need to take that seriously, and you need to think about that as you make your decisions, because we as Christians have a responsibility to vote. And if I haven't mentioned that for a while, I should mention it again. Yes, we have a responsibility to vote, and elections are coming up this fall. Probably there will be elections wherever you live. I don't know that for sure. I don't know the whole country, but in all likelihood, there will be elections that you will be expected to vote in. So get registered, find out what's going on, look at the candidates, and think about whether the candidates that are running for office live under the truth or whether they have adopted some other view of truth that will result in them using their power, if elected, to inflict, yes, inflict that truth on you. The other way to think about that, and, and I think this is absolutely critical for, for those of us who are Christians, we need to vote for the candidate that will lessen evil. You probably won't find a perfect candidate out there, but you can find a candidate that will lessen evil. So look carefully, pray about it, ask people who know. Many times there's somebody that you know that knows the candidates more personally, and they can help you and make the selection that will honor God by overcoming evil with good by voting for the candidate that will lessen evil. Voting for the candidate that understands there is truth and there is falsehood, and we will live under truth or power, and we choose truth. All right, well, that's a little revisiting of Jeremiah, a little more than I thought we might need, but I think it's so critical for these days that we that I really wanted to make sure we we didn't miss that, and uh, I just felt really, really glad uh, that that God let me see that because wow, that's so insightful to me. That I've I've lived with that idea for a number of days now, and it's just really, really helped me sort things out and think things through. Well, so let's go ahead now to to the parables that Jesus taught us, and that Luke gives us in Luke chapter fifteen. There, as I said earlier, there are three parables here in a row. We're not going to try to address all three of them. We're going to focus on two. We're not going to try to get to everything in even those two parables. Parables are absolutely so much fun to study. There are so many interesting things. There are so many directions we could go, but we're going to we're going to focus on just a few and and see what we can draw out of these two parables that Jesus told us. So let me read them for you from Luke chapter 15. I'm reading as I usually do from the Christian Standard Bible. It's the one I like, makes sense to me, helps me when I study. You should find a Bible that you like, that you will read. I mean, you can have a dozen Bibles, but if you don't read them, you may as well have none. Oh, amen, pastor, that's right. Well, yeah, it is right. So get a Bible that you will read, that you can understand, that will benefit you. And let's explore together. So from Luke chapter 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And in this case, just to clarify, the him is Jesus. They were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus again, Jesus told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, 
he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. And Jesus continues with another parable, verse 8. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Two parables Jesus told, two of my favorite parables. I like these parables. I don't particularly know why. I just enjoy them. And, and I think they're so insightful in so many ways. And, and we're going to look at them as a pair. Jesus told them, or at least the way Luke gives us the story of Jesus, he told them as a set of three. And uh, as I said earlier, we're not going to get to the third one, the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. Just don't have time to get to all of that. But but let me summarize. I found this summary that some somebody had put together. I thought this was really helpful, too, because it reminds us how much these two parables parallel each other. And so here's a summary someone put together. Which man or woman, having 100 sheep or 10 coins, if he or she loses one, does not leave or sweep, go after and seek until he or she finds it? When he or she has found it, he or she calls together his or her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep, or the coin which was, or I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy, or is joy in heaven, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you get the parallel. A sheep is lost, a coin is lost, and the owner goes in search of that lost coin or sheep. Well, let's start at the beginning of, of the section here where the story is set up, because the story is set up quite interestingly, and in a way we, we might quickly pass over if we didn't think more carefully about it. And I want to make sure we think carefully about this first part. So first two verses of chapter 15 read like this, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we have it set up that tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. Now, because of the complaining in the next verse, we're pretty sure they weren't approaching to be fans of Jesus. But nonetheless, they were paying attention. Now, the Pharisees and the uh, scribes were experts in religious law, but let's first talk about tax collectors and sinners. You know, today when we call someone a sinner, it's kind of considered uh, a bit of an insult. Well, it's not a nice description. I mean, nobody wants to be called a sinner, even though we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as the scripture uses it here, it's not meant to be an insult. It's a description. Now, I always found it interesting that tax collectors and sinners are, are grouped together here, and, and there's a good reason for that. The tax collectors were usually Jewish people who had 
bid on the job of being a tax collector for the Romans. And they would bid on the job based upon their ability to collect the tax and then what additional surcharge they would add to it so that they could live because they made their money on the overcharge, we might say. And so they were not at all well thought of in those days, not at all. They were considered corrupt and traitors to their people. And sinners, well, sinners were thought of as those people who were not among the righteous or in right standing, we might say, with God. They were those who were not part of the covenant people, or maybe those who had violated the covenant and so needed to be made right with God. Now, all of the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen, and so were the Pharisees because they come along complaining. So here's this group of, of people that are uh, definitely categorized as um, not your best friends. And the Pharisees come along and complain that Jesus is treating them like good friends. Maybe not best friends. I don't know how you distinguish that, but certainly good friends because it says he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, that's a curious thing, isn't it? I hope you welcome everybody. You know, sometimes there are people that we hear about that that we don't like the way they behave or we don't like this or that or the other thing. And so we are kind of, um, how should I say, suspicious. We're kind of concerned if we were to meet them, how we should treat them. What would our friends think if we were their friend or things like that? Well, we need to get over that and not not go down that road. And this is part of what the story here tells us, because Jesus welcomed them, even though they were not considered socially acceptable people. Jesus not only welcomed them, and I hope you would welcome them. I hope you would shake hands with, with the sorriest rascal you know, and smile and greet them kindly. Be a friend to them. Why, why make of them an enemy? Why not? But it sometimes requires a little adjustment on our part, so go ahead and adjust. Jesus did. He welcomed them, and it says he even ate with them. Now, that's interesting. We don't necessarily think of having a meal with people quite the same way they did in those days. Uh, we, we think about it similarly because usually, I think usually, we don't think about having, um, having a pleasant meal with our worst enemy. Well, I hope you would say that you don't have any enemies up. As far as I know, I don't have any enemies. People sometimes make themselves my enemy when they disagree with me. But, but I don't want anybody. I don't want anybody in my life that that I treat like an enemy. I don't. I don't want to be enemies with people. And I'm hoping that you don't want to be enemies either. But in those days, this idea of um, eating with someone was really a really a consequential kind of thing. Uh, sometimes you will hear it referred to as as table fellowship, that, that they would have table fellowship with these people. Well, that's a good word, and, and you can look that up using that description. But what it simply meant was that often mealtimes were a time when social boundaries were enforced and, and very obvious. So, for example, the Pharisees and the scribes here being in the covenant would not have table fellowship, would not sit down for a meal with tax collectors and sinners because that just wasn't socially acceptable. They were alien from God and the Pharisees and the scribes were not. And so they couldn't invite them to table fellowship because there was a significance in welcoming someone to the table, a significance that 
that indicated things that the Pharisees and the scribes didn't want to indicate about these tax collectors and sinners. So right from the beginning, it's very interesting and very helpful for us to recognize that Jesus welcomes these people and he even has a meal with them in, in violation of the social norms of that time. Well, they attack him for that. They grumble about that, complain about that. And so the stories that Jesus tells now following that little exchange very briefly described in verses one and two, the stories Jesus tells then defends his behavior in that situation. It defends his behavior in having table fellowship and welcoming these people who were not socially acceptable, that they were not to be welcomed at the table. They were to be ostracized because they were tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus, having welcomed them, now tells these stories to help the Pharisees and the scribes make the connection that, hey, fellas, this is this is not so bad after all. You know, these, these good old boys, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were just grumbling and complaining. And, and here's something very interesting about them. They, they thought of themselves as um, righteous. They thought of themselves as, as the good guys. But here's a question for all of us to consider. Why do people, sometimes even people today, why do people who claim to have experienced grace resent when grace is offered to someone else. You ever think about that? Why do people who claim to have experienced grace sometimes get upset when grace is extended to someone else? And Jesus is simply extending grace to people who needed it. And he's trying to help them help them move from far from God to friends of God. That's his point. And so here are these guys setting up this kind of tension, and everybody would have recognized that it wouldn't have been a surprise to anybody there. And so Jesus tells these two stories for the benefit of the scribes and Pharisees, but I like to think, and and I hope they were listening too, that the tax collectors and sinners heard this as well, because it's an important lesson for all of us as Jesus defends his behavior. So he starts out with the parable of the of the lost sheep. We describe it as the lost sheep because there was one sheep that had strayed from the flock. Now, a herd of 99 was, some people describe it as a modest herd. Other people say it was a pretty good-sized herd. They had herds up to 200 in those days. And so this particular shepherd, as Jesus explained it, had a herd of 100, and one sheep was missing, had wandered away. And so the shepherd recognizing that he was missing a sheep, placed a lot of value on that missing sheep and went looking for it. I don't know much about sheep, and I don't know much about shepherding, but I do understand this, that often when a sheep wanders away from the flock and is confused and can't find the way back to the flock, that sheep just gives up and lays down, kind of hopeless. And so it's up to the shepherd to find that sheep because the sheep won't find itself. In other words, it won't get itself back. And so here the shepherd goes looking for that lost sheep in hopes of finding it. And the story tells us the shepherd found it and and picks it up and carries it home. And there's great rejoicing because the lost sheep was found. And and that's kind of cool, isn't it? I, I think any of us would behave like that 
especially when we lose something that's important to us. We want to find the the missing object, and here the shepherd, of course, it would had some monetary value to the shepherd. It would have been part of his livelihood, but the joy here seems to be all in proportion to the value of the sheep. I mean, one one-hundredth of the flock, percentage-wise, is small, but to the shepherd, that lost sheep mattered and went looking for him. And Jesus is saying uh, pretty clearly to all of us and to the scribes and Pharisees, look, when someone is far from God, when someone is outside the flock, they matter. They are valuable. And a good shepherd will go seek and find them. And so the shepherd went and found the lost sheep. And the rejoicing is over the finding and the bringing the sheep home. And the shepherd invites his neighbors and friends to help in the rejoicing. And Jesus said, that's how it is in heaven. That's very interesting how it says here, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. So God rejoices when people turn to him. And if you need to turn to him, why not let him rejoice today? If you're far from God, if you've alienated yourself from God and you need to turn back to him, why not do that now? Turn back to God today. There'll be great rejoicing in heaven. And there's about to be great rejoicing right here because we're going to take a break and give you a chance to take a breath. And and I'm going to take a breath and we're going to come back and we're going to talk some more about how we behave when things are lost and how God values that which is lost and reach a conclusion that you may not have expected. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. 
there's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. This is Faith Is. So you're in the right place. You're in the right place for God to stretch you in his direction. You're in the right place to understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the real pastor of a real church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And my church is pleased to bring you these programs to help you have the opportunity to understand what God is up to in our world and how he wants to shape our lives and lead our lives and strengthen us so that we can stand up to the difficulties of the day. And so we can understand how to live faithfully before him in spite of challenges. Christians have always faced challenges. We can live up to our responsibilities as well. So let's do that. And we've been talking about Jesus and his defense of his behavior where he welcomed socially unacceptable people, tax collectors and sinners, he welcomed them to his presence and even had a meal with them, which crossed the social boundaries of his day because you weren't supposed to eat with that kind of people if you were a righteous person or a faithful member of the covenant. You just didn't do that. But Jesus welcomed them. And to defend his behavior, he told the story that we just talked about, the story of the lost sheep, and how the shepherd went looking for the one. And then he went on to tell the story of a woman who lost a coin in her house, one of 10. She lost a 10th of what she had. Now here, we might say, well, the value is a little greater because it's a 10th of, of her savings and the shepherd lost 100th of his flock. Well, maybe, I don't know that the comparison is necessary. I can't find any reason in the text to think that the value of the comparison between the sheep and the coin is important. The important thing is it was something valuable that was lost. And so the woman went searching for it. You know, how do we behave when something that's valuable to us gets lost? You know, I, I was thinking about that and, and I've been fortunate. I probably shouldn't say this because I'll probably lose something important to me. Uh, but most of the time, I, most of my life, I haven't really lost things. I've probably forgotten most of the things I'm sure I have that I've lost because maybe they didn't turn out to be that important, but it just doesn't seem that I'm always losing something. Uh, I'm thankful for that, but I did lose something recently, and it it kind of pointed out to me as I was studying this that that value is is interesting, and how we behave when something value is valuable is lost matters. Well. Uh, a couple of months ago, I went on vacation and I realized part way up the road heading north that I had left my tumbler coffee cup out. I hadn't picked it up and put it away. I'd left it out at church and um, 
that wasn't a good thing because I was going to be gone for three weeks. Well, I thought about that briefly. I certainly wasn't going to turn around and, and get it. And I thought, well, you know, people know that that's my cup. They've seen me use it. Somebody will find it and it'll turn up when I get back. I don't really need to worry about that. And I also knew that over time, I found a lot of tumblers left around our church and I've got a little bit of a collection of them. And so I thought, well, that'll be the same way because sometimes I've left tumblers out where people could find them and they sit there for a couple of weeks and nobody claims them. So I thought the same thing will be true for my coffee cup. But I got back and it's nowhere to be found. Well, it's just a tumbler coffee cup, you'd say. And that's true. It has value because I liked it, but also it has value because my daughter gave it to me. And I was a little struck by how much it bothered me. I thought, well, I'm not going to say much about it. It'll turn up. And I found myself mentioning it to more people than I intended to. Uh, nobody had seen it. I asked the people I thought might have seen it. No, nobody knew anything about it. Uh, so it's still missing. Well, am I going to get over the loss of a tumbler coffee cup? Yes. Is it the end of the world? No. But it reminded me that just like the people in this story, and of course, what they lost was far more valuable than a tumbler coffee cup. You probably got a dozen of them. What they lost was far more valuable and they went seeking it. But when we lose something that's valuable, we go looking for it. And when Jesus recognizes that there are lost people of value, he goes looking for them. And so again, we have the woman who loses this coin, particularly valuable coin to her for several reasons. And she can't find it. So she sweeps the house and looks for it. And, and they often had earthen floors or sometimes floors made out of stone. And so she would sweep it and, and use a lamp to try to find it because it wouldn't always be easy to see in the, the dark. They didn't have electric lights, of course. And so illumination would have been a challenge. But, but she set out to find that coin. And of course, she found it. And there was great rejoicing. She found the lost coin, great rejoicing. Well, of course, it'd be great rejoicing. She was glad she found it. And Jesus said, as he wrapped up that story, that I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. She had joy. There's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. I always thought that was kind of interesting. What does that mean in the presence of God's angels? Well, maybe it means in their careful way of saying things and respectful way of saying things, maybe that means that God himself was rejoicing. And so, of course, in the presence of the angels, God rejoices. Well, we rejoice when we find things that we lose that are valuable to us. I haven't found that tumbler mug. If I did, I'd rejoice, but I'm not going to worry about it. But God does worry about people who are far from him. He does want them to return to him. He makes every effort to welcome them. Just like it says, Jesus sat down and had a meal with them to welcome them. And there's joy if they change their lives and follow him. And I've been thinking about this idea of changing your life. You know, I mentioned that fairly frequently because I, I think that's a key. We have, we have said too often to people, just pray a prayer and you're good with God. Well, that's not the message of Jesus, and that's not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is repent, or as I usually say, change your life. So if you find yourself alienated from God or in rebellion to God, then this idea of repentance is for you. 
But again, I was thinking about that, and, and I ask myself this, and I think about this from time to time in relation to change. You know, every time you hear people start to talk about change, they they generally mention how hard it is for people to change, how much people don't want to change, all those kinds of things. Well, okay, I, I hear them say that. I don't think that's true because I think people like to change. And I use this way too often, way too often, maybe way too um, tritely. I don't, I don't know, I, but I, I haven't come up with a better idea. But I think you would enjoy the change if I could somehow just right this moment, double your income, whatever it is, I think you would delight in that change. Or if I could give you 10 times the income you have right now, I think you would accept that change joyfully. I don't think you would resist that change. I don't think you'd say, oh no, Pastor Rick, don't give me that change. I can't stand more money. No, I think people would enjoy that change. I think most everybody would. But there are other times that change is difficult because I think the problem we have with change is we resist it when we think we're going to lose something important. You know, when you gain something, you don't mind that because it's such a good thing, like doubling or raising your income by 10. Those are good things. But if we think we're losing something, then we tend to resist that. So I was thinking about that. How easy is it for us to change? Well, it's not too hard for me to change my mind when I'm driving down the road and I want to change from one lane to another. I just change. It's no big deal. I don't think anything about it. And for me, uh, maybe it's true for you too, to change from plain M&Ms to peanut M&Ms. Hey, that's great. I'm happy to do that. Those are easy changes. I don't think anything about them. There are dozens of those kind of changes that go on all the time. We hardly think about them. However, there are some things that are part of who we are and we think about those differently. If there are things about us that are really intertwined with our identity, then it's much more difficult for us to think about changing. So let me give you an example. It's, it's the beginning of football season and college football is underway. And I, I was thinking, how do I illustrate this idea of identity? Well, I have a friend who is from Michigan and always roots for Michigan teams. So that friend roots for the University of Michigan Wolverines. Some of you might be Michigan fans as well. And some of you, as soon as I mention that school up north and call it Michigan, you're you're already thinking something else because you're an Ohio State fan. Well, hang on with me just for a minute. Hang on. So my friend is a Michigan fan and and won't likely change. That identity is, is who he is. He's a Michigan fan. Uh, if he were suddenly to become a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, and and I might add a much better team, a much better choice. All right, all right, I hear you, I hear you. I was born in Ohio, so of course I'm going to think that way. But if he was to change from a Michigan fan after all of his life, what, 60 years? I don't even know how old he is, probably older than that, but he'd been a Michigan fan all this time. And if he were suddenly to renounce that and become a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, Wow, he would really hear about it from his friends. Now, it would all be good-natured, but he would still hear about it for a very long time. They would really give him the business over changing like that. Well, that would be fun. He'll never do that, by the way. And if all of you Buckeye fans think Michigan fans are going to change, I wouldn't count on it at all. All of you Michigan fans think you're going to change Buckeye fans? Uh, not likely. But, okay, you get the idea. When something is such a part of who we are, it takes something 
really significant to change that. And so I was thinking about that. Consider the person, and maybe you know some people like this, I don't, I don't know. Consider the person who has, for years and years and years, resisted Jesus. They resisted attending church. They have made that part of their identity. They've given one excuse or another. They, they make statements supporting their position, uh, sometimes maybe even very strong statements that they just, that's not for them, whatever the explanation might be. I don't, I don't know what, don't pretend to know what they might say, but, but you get the idea. They've defended their resistance to following Jesus, even attending church. Now for them to change, repent, to use the language of the stories that we just read, for them to change, to repent, and start following Jesus and attending church would be colossal. It would be huge. And, and people would, would be amazed that they changed. Their identity would change. It, it would be such a difference in the way people thought of them that, that even if they considered doing it, they have to wonder if people would make statements to them, uh, shaming kinds of statements like, it's about time, or I thought you'd never see the light. Well, those are, those are, in a sense, shaming statements. And, and it takes a lot for a person to stand up to some of that kind of stuff, particularly when it's over something so significant as changing to follow Jesus. And, and so I, I just want to put that out there that, that when they talk about in the parables here, the rejoicing, that we need to make sure that our focus is on the rejoicing, not on the, oh, finally you did it, okay, which is not helpful because that might keep someone from re repenting and following Jesus. And we don't want to do that. So we need to think about how we can make it easy. And, and one of my suggestions about that is to think about joy. See, joy was what was described in heaven over the finding of the lost sheep and lost coin. Joy resulted. And so we need to think about the joy and just rejoice no thought of anything else except rejoicing. Why would we make an issue of the change? Just rejoice. Why would we do anything to make it difficult for people to change in the right direction? Just rejoice. Okay, let me give you another really rather silly example. How many men, maybe before the use of so many GPS map apps in our phones, how many men knew where they were going when they went for a drive in the car, but at some point or another, it seemed obvious that they were not where they meant to be and they were lost. And how many men, when she, and ladies, I'm not picking on you, I'm just using this as an illustration, when she made an issue of, you better stop and ask directions, instead of expressing support for the person, and encouraging that, it became a contest of wills. I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing. Well, we don't want to do that if it keeps people from the kingdom of God. We want to do what Jesus described. We want to focus on the joy. Now, I kind of came across this idea as I was studying this because I, I just was really struck by the joy. Most of the time when we look at these passages, both the one about the sheep and the coin and even the the prodigal son, we focus on the lost idea, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But I read a little note that a student from another culture 
was explaining that in their context, in their culture, they don't focus on the lost sheep coin son. They focus on the joy of the restoration because when that lost sheep comes back, the herd is complete. When the lost coin is found, the collection is restored to wholeness. When the son comes home, all is well because the family is back together. And I think we miss something in our culture that focuses so much on individualism when we fail to realize that God wants to complete the people of God by adding those who have alienated themselves from God, those who have rebelled against God. And we want to do everything we can to make it easy for them to reconcile with God. So as you think about your response to the people around you, think about that. And if you're one of those people that that is far from God, and you realize you've been rebelling, then think about joy. I hope you won't have people in your life that'll make it difficult for you to change. But think about the joy of changing. Let the joy overcome the fear of anything. One of my least favorite things to do is to move from one house to another. Recently, I was talking to someone who was in the process of moving, and they said something very interesting to me because they were moving across town, so it wasn't a huge deal, not like moving out of state. But they said to me, you know, yeah, it's a lot of work, but when you're moving into a house you just love and you're really anticipating moving into that house, the work kind of falls into perspective. Think about that as you move toward Jesus, whatever else might get in the way, think about the joy. Think about the completeness. Think about the wholeness you will experience and move toward him. Don't let anything keep you away. Well, I promised that I had 10 things, and I think I have time to get to all of them. We'll see if I talk too much and can't get to all 10, but we'll try to get to all 10 of them. I've just been thinking about some of these kind of things, and, and I don't know, it kind of helps me to process this. Maybe it'll help you to think about these things. Um, maybe it'll just be a kind of a refreshment from a kind of a heavy lesson from Jesus about joy and getting it right and welcoming those that need to be welcomed. So 10 things I think. Well, first on that list this week was, I think churches are at risk. And I think we sometimes minimize that risk. Yes, churches are enormously resilient. I want to give a shout out to all of the churches that are resilient. They overcome the difficulties of life, and they step up to the challenges, and they just keep on keeping on. And I want to salute all of you who do this. But at the same time, I want us to recognize that churches are at risk in our world, not because they might not be able to continue to function, but because they might be attacked from outside. And we need to be alert to that, and we need to protect ourselves from that and not be naive at the threats that are out there against churches. Number two of the 10 things I think, and this is a pretty obvious one. Some of you are going to say, well, duh. And, and that's okay. Sometimes people say that to me. They think I'm in the slow group and they're right. But number two of 10 things I think, sin always ends in death. Always. And that's why God says don't sin because it's bad for you. Sin always ends in death. Now, some people might say, well, it hadn't ended in death, and I've been enjoying sin for quite some time. Well, it's not ended yet. You'll see. 
And that's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't have to end in death, but sin unforgiven, failure to repent, ends in death. That's a pretty sober thing. I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes. Uh, number three, 10 things I think. Oh, this, this is a good one for some of you. Oh, I don't know who this is going to help. And some of you are going to go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. Well, some of you are, but not in a bad way. Number three, 10 things I think. We worry our prayers too much. Bad things happen. Really bad things happen. I prayed with some people this morning. A bad accident had happened, and someone's life may very well be changed forever because of it. Uh, I hope the Lord intervenes and 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 does a remarkable work of grace and healing the the young man in question. I really do, but we all recognize it's a very serious situation, and so I know bad things happen. But I'm really convinced that we fail in our praying when we fail to acknowledge before God that we trust him. This this really helps me a lot in Philippians chapter 4 from the message, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4 from the message. And again, it's a different English translation, but it's a good one. It says this, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So when you have a concern, instead of worrying that concern before God, shape that concern into petitions and praises. When you talk to God, Give thanks that he hears and he knows and he helps people just like you, just like the people you're praying for. Let's not worry as much as we thank God for his help and acknowledge his greatness and his goodness. Number four, I think God surprises us. Well, I meant to mention this last week, but as I said earlier, I got kind of carried away with the, with the Bible lesson and I didn't get to, to this, but God surprises us. Two weeks ago on Sunday, I woke up early seems like I always wake up early on Sunday, and that's fine. I'm happy to do that. But I remember thinking about who might come to church. I don't usually think this way, but I remember thinking about who might come to church, and I and I just said a prayer to God. I said, just bring whoever needs to come and have them come today. And to my surprise, some people came that I wasn't expecting, particularly two people from out of town visited our church, and you know who you are, visited our church because they'd been listening to the podcast, to this radio program, and they came all the way to Florida and happened to be nearby, and they came to our church to visit us. And I thought that was a great surprise. God really surprised me with that, and I was grateful. I'm also grateful, number five on the 10 things I think, I'm grateful for a group called Alliance Defending Freedom. If you don't know them, get acquainted. They defend freedom, and we need to be grateful for that. Number six, 10 things I think, I think we sh see showers of blessing in Florida all the time, flood our streets and and we have a lot of rain and a lot of heat and a lot of humidity this time of the year. But sometimes I have to remind myself that these showers are showers of blessing. And I think that we see that visibly a lot here. I'm also thankful, number seven on my 10 list, my list of 10 things I think. I'm thankful that the United States still defends freedom of speech. We're the only country in the world that defends freedom of speech. That's important. Number eight of the 10 things I think free speech and religious freedom are, if not one and the same, they're joined at the hip. 
and we need to defend both of them. It really matters. I think that's important. If you haven't thought about that, think about that. I think number nine, we should all give thanks for Congressman Jody Heiss. I met Congressman Heiss a couple of weeks ago, a faithful follower of Jesus and a member of the United States Congress. Isn't that terrific to know that there are some people like that doing good work and representing the kingdom of God in a place that really, as one person said to me, the hate is palpable. So I thank the Lord for people like Congressman Heiss. And number 10 on the 10 things I think, I think most people don't know that there is a committed Christian judge sitting on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out West. Sometimes we call the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals the Ninth Circus because of their often goofy rulings. But I was so thrilled to hear one of the judges speak and give his testimony of faithfulness to God and to realize that he sits on that court in a strategic place, and we should all give thanks. Isn't it amazing what God is doing? Uh, I could talk a lot more about these 10 things, but by now you may be tired of hearing me talk, and I want to make sure that we remind ourselves to hear God talk. What God says is far more important than what I say. And in no small way in this story that we looked at, from the story of the shepherd that went after the sheep and the woman who searched for the coin, we discover how much people matter to God and how much you matter to him and how much he wants you to be reconciled to him, how much he wants to welcome you to his table, how much he wants to welcome you one day home in heaven forever. Please don't turn away. Please consider the joy and take that step toward him. He's reaching to you right now. Take the step. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll talk again next week.